The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Uncovering Gene Fusions and Other Key Genomic Alterations in Lung, Thyroid, Colon, Breast, and Other Solid Tumors to Enable All Patients to Gain the Full Benefits of Targeted Treatment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash P-U-E 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. I'd like to welcome everyone to our program, Uncovering Gene Fusions and Other Key Genomic Alterations in Lung, Thyroid, Colon, Breast, and Other Solid Tumors to Enable Patients to Gain the Full Benefits of Targeted Treatment. Today, we've assembled a wonderful group of speakers. I'm Alex Drillon, Chief of the Early Drug Development Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. And I'll let our other two speakers introduce themselves, starting with Dr. Dimitri. Thanks, Alex. I'm George Dimitri. I'm a professor at Harvard Medical School, and I direct the Sarcoma Center and co-direct the Ludwig Center at Dana-Farber and Harvard Medical School. Hi, I'm uh, Vivek Subaya from the University of Texas, uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center, Houston, Texas. I'm an associate professor here and also the center medical director for the Clinical Center for Targeted Therapy, which is the early phase drug development program at MD Anderson. We have here our agenda for today. The seminars in oncology are divided into two major sections. The first section will focus on the biology behind fusions that we're going to discuss, where these are found across different cancers, and what tests we can use to find these fusions. And then finally, in the second session, we're going to cover the targeted therapies that are available for the treatment of patients with fusion-positive cancers, how these cancers can acquire resistance to therapy, and what new treatments are available in the setting of acquired resistance. And then we're going to end with a practicum where we're going to talk through a few cases of patients who have responded to therapy and discuss as well strategies for diagnostic testing in the clinic. Before we get into the first session, we'd like to first touch on the gaps that led to the symposium that we have today. Essentially, we would like to highlight that there are therapies that are active for these fusion-positive tumors as um, it's a well-known fact that we can do better in terms of diagnostic testing to find these fusions and appropriately match our patients to these targeted treatments. And we begin with the first seminar, and I am going to kick it off. We'd like to start with the history of the discovery of oncogenic fusions for you. And you see here on the upper left that the seminal event was the discovery of the small marker chromosome in patients with CML that we later identified as the BCR-ABL translocation. And if you look at the bottom of the arrow, you see that subsequent to that, a number of fusions were found in many other cancers, um, specifically solid tumors, where we first found a fusion in a salivary gland adenoma, followed by Ewing sarcoma. But later on, you'll see that many different fusions were found in cancers like lung cancer and gastrointestinal tumors, among other histologies. We'll also note that in the different colored boxes, we've seen diagnostic migration that we'll also touch on in this session, 
where earlier efforts were focused on assays like karyotyping and chromosomal banding, later moving towards assays like FISH and RT-PCR. And today in 2022, of course, many centers have migrated towards more comprehensive sequencing with NGS. So what is a gene fusion? Essentially, you have, in simple terms, one gene fusing with another, either with the genes being on different chromosomes or the same chromosome. There are many different types of gene fusions, but today we're specifically going to discuss fusions that include a kinase domain that drives oncogenic signaling. And when you're looking at a patient's report, in order to figure out if a fusion is real, some of the buzzwords that I like to remember are that the event is in frame, meaning that it can be read, the message can be read without interruption or, or skipping um, of one or two codons. But the second major buzzword is that you have the intact kinase domain, which we mentioned drives signaling and growth of the cancer. While this applies to many fusions like ALK and ROS1, we're going to highlight two different fusions for you today. Here you see RET fusions. These are found in lung and thyroid cancers, and you'll hear more about that in the next section. But the yellow motif there shows you the kinase domain that's typically intact in a RET fusion. And that occurs in the three prime portion or the end or tail of the fusion, while in the five prime position, the other gene typically can contribute motifs like coiled coil domains that result in ligand independent dimerization and constitutive activation of the chimeric oncoprotein. The same is true of NTRAC. If you focus your attention to the lower right, again, where you see an in-frame event with a full NTRAC kinase domain. But one thing to remember is that there isn't a singular NTRAC gene. If you focus on the table here, you'll see that there are three different genes, NTRAC 1, 2, and 3, that encode the proteins TRAC A, TRAC B, and TRAC C. And with that, we'll pass it on to Dr. Dimitri to talk about where we find these fusions. Dr. Drillon gave you a very nice history of the overview of fusions in cancers, starting with the original paradigm of the CML-BCR-ABLE fusion. But since that time, many people have discovered many other fusions. And I call your attention to this paper by Nico Stransky, from 2014, where he looked through many public data sets of gene sequencing and found a number of kinase fusions across many types of cancers. Look on the x-axis. You see fusions in many genes. Those are on the y-axis. But on the x-axis, you see the many different kinds of cancers that have gene fusions identified. Thyroid cancer, glioblastomas, lung cancer, sarcomas, and the list goes on and on. This is the so-called long tail of kinase fusions, which can be found in many types of cancers. So you're getting a theme here that kinase fusions can be found across a range of histiotypes. And it's very important that we as oncologists identify these to try to choose the right therapy and understand what standard treatments do. We certainly know that it's important both in adults and children. On this figure, you see the fact that certain very rare tumor types like infantile fibrosarcoma are defined by fusions, let's say, in the NTREC gene. 
So that's a very rare cancer, but it's very widely known that more than 95% of them will have the fusion. On the left, in adults, in red, you see the types of rare cancers like secretory breast cancer or the mammary analog secretory carcinoma of salivary glands, which again have NTREC fusions almost all the time. But others like lung cancers and even different types of sarcomas will not necessarily have these TREC fusions all the time, but they're certainly important when they are present in patients. So it's really just important to keep these in mind because it makes a difference in the way we approach our patients. Now, one way of conceptualizing this is where would these fusions be found in most of the patients with a type of disease? So look all the way to the right of this table. You'll see the rare types of cancers I just mentioned, like this mask or mammary analog secretory carcinoma of salivary glands, the same type of secretory uh, in a breast. So that's a breast carcinoma of the secretory subset, very rare and then infantile fibrosarcomas. All of those will have a very high, probably more than 75 to 95% fusion frequency in the NTREC gene. If you go all the way to the left, you see a number of more common cancers like adenocarcinoma of the lung, colorectal cancers, other types of things like rare breast cancer subtypes or glioblastomas. There you'll see a TREC fusion in less than 5% of patients but even though they're rare, they're absolutely critical to think about in the differential and to consider as a therapeutic target for those patients. And in the middle, you see sort of the middle ground. Where are these somewhat enriched? And I'll call your attention to the bottom group there, GIST without other mutations. So if a GIST does not have a mutation in KIT or PDGF receptor alpha or RAF or something else that's very rare like SDH, those GISTs are where they are enriched for TREC fusions. So again, we can try to find these tumors where they're going to be enriched, but most common cancers will be all the way to the left of this. Unusual, but should be part of your comprehensive genomic profiling for things like lung cancers. Now, similarly, there are RET fusions in a variety of solid tumors that can be found. And the key thing again here is if that fusion is in frame and turns into a fusion oncoprotein, it's almost certainly a driver of that cancer. So most commonly we think of RET fusions as occurring in non-small cell lung cancers. Even though they're rare, non-small cell lung cancer is common, so there are a lot of patients with that. And a higher percentage of patients with papillary or other thyroid cancers, 10 to 20 percent. Below that, you'll see a number of other common cancers like pancreas cancer, colorectal cancer, ovarian cancer, or even cholangiocarcinoma, which have a low, less than 1%, but still a finite incidence of having RET fusions. And when they are there, they are almost certainly the drivers. So it's very important to keep this in mind as well as you approach patients with a variety of solid tumors. Now we'll turn over to Dr. Sabaya to talk about the tests that we can use to find these various fusions. Yeah, now we come to diagnostics. Uh, the pace of genomics and immunological breakthroughs in oncology is breathtaking. And the key and the raising the air of precision oncology is you know, offering the right drug to the right patient at the right time. Again, Dr. Drillen and Dr. Dimitri have elegantly defined uh, uh, you know, how we detect these fusions and, you know, why we need to uh, detect these fusions. Now, the important part comes to the diagnostic aspects. So, 
what are the you know different technologies to assess uh, you know these uh, fusions? You know, different methods have been used to test for the presence of all these NTREC or RET genomic alterations. Methods available are IHC, which we call it immunohistochemistry, FISH or fluorescent in situ hybridization, RNA and DNA based next generation sequencing assay. However, the sensitivity and specificity of all these tests, you know, are varied. And uh, like for instance, the sensitivity of immunohistochemistry-based technology are not optimal. And IHC has not been viewed as a reliable testing in this setting. So fusions, you know, as you see in the slide, are a different kind of fish. We need to understand, uh, you know, basically the difference between uh, fusion and a mutation. You know, take for instance in NTRAC or RET. So what does the gene fusion do? The gene fusion does, there is no change to DNA sequence. Whereas in a gene mutation, there is a definite sequence, you know, there's a definite change in the DNA sequence. And as you can see here, the change to the location of the gene of the chromosome is seen in fusions. Now typically, because of these gene fusions, it uh, results in an overactive receptor. For NTREC genes, fusions are activating and predictive of response to targeted therapy. Again, as I said earlier, uh, these fusion events, specifically the red fusions, are prone to underdetection by fish. And you know why we need to do you know different testing methodologies, right? What we say here is, and a testing for red fusions is very important, especially for malignancies with high red fusion prevalence like non-small cell lung cancer, thyroid cancers, and a long tail of other cancers. Interestingly, next generation sequencing here allows for testing of simultaneously multiple alterations. And other methods like FISH are used. FISH is highly sensitive, but it requires technical expertise. And immunohistochemistry here lacks sensitivity and specificity for routine clinical use, but you know it is easily accessible. Since a vast majority of genomic rearrangements occur in the introns, we need to sequence introns. Introns tend to be much larger than exons, so we must sequence more. Introns tend to contain repetitive sequences. Again, it is very hard to map and thus difficult to sequence and these introns are variable from gene to gene. Again, as I said earlier, you know, the preferred methodology is next generation sequencing. Here, we need to understand there are two methods for DNA-based and next generation sequencing testing. DNA-based next generation sequencing testing and RNA-based next generation sequencing testing. As I said earlier, Next generation sequencing testing allows for testing for multiple alterations simultaneously. DNA is an option here, but some NTREC1 or NTREC3 fusions may not be detected using the DNA-based next generation sequencing testing. RNA-based NGS is the preferred option for fusion detection because you know, this can detect additional gene fusions relative to a DNA-based next generation sequencing testing method. Again, uh, what is RNA-based testing? By evaluating the RNA genes, 
regions known to be involved in fusions, one can work backwards to identify a fusion partner. We need to hear only sequence exon of interest to look for unexpected adjacent sequence. RNA-based technology can directly assess whether the gene fusion is being expressed at least at the RNA level. Why is RNA-based NGS superior to DNA-based next-generation sequencing option? Because we see false negatives with DNA-based next-generation sequencing options. RNA-based approaches may overcome all these limitations. Following a review of literature on the available methods for detecting alterations, specifically the RET alterations, uh, the ESMO Transnational Research and the Precision Oncology Working Group formulated recommendations for RET testing according to malignancies to identify patients who may be candidates for selective RET inhibitor therapy. Similar guidelines also exist for NTREC fusion testing across all solid tumors. And interestingly, because sarcomas also harbor NTREC fusions, there is a specific uh, ESMO translational research and ESMO working group guidelines for detecting NTREC fusions across all sarcomas. In the second seminar, we are going to now focus on the available targeted therapies, approved treatments for patients with fusion-positive cancers, look at how these cancers might acquire resistance to these TKIs, and also discuss emerging next-generation therapies for these patients. And we'll start off with Dr. Dimitri. Thank you, Alex. Um, so you get the idea that there have been fusions we've targeted for years, CML with BCR-ABLE. We're going to focus in on the newest targeted therapies that everybody needs to know about. We're going to start with TREK inhibitors. We're fortunate because we have two TREK inhibitors, larotrectinib, which was the first NTREK inhibitor and has the indication that you can read there. But basically, it's an NTREK gene fusion with no known acquired resistance mutation. You'll hear a little bit more about resistance in the second part. And then another drug called entrectinib, which again is adult and pediatric patients, just like larotrectinib, similarly NTREK fusion, etc. So you can read that there, but we have two choices for TREK inhibitors in the United States. Now it's important to see the data and how really remarkable the data are with both of these drugs. With entrectinib, there's a somewhat smaller data set with the efficacy population, as you can see by the color scheme, being across many kinds of tumors, sarcomas, lung cancers, breast cancers, colorectal, with this magnificent waterfall plot. And that's absolutely true for larotrectinib on the right. A bit more patience, a bit longer follow-up, and absolutely spectacular waterfall plots. I call your attention to the far right of each waterfall because that is minus 100%. In other words, no evidence of active disease, complete remissions in those patients, both with larotrectinib and a few with entrectinib. So we're seeing high levels of response and they are also durable. Admittedly, the safety is also better than anyone could have predicted. NTREC, because it's important to the nervous system, there was a concern that would NTREC drugging drugs be a problem for patients? And remarkably, the safety is really outstanding. There's a bit of what you see on the left, some occasional laboratory abnormalities, a bit of very minor side effects with the GI tract or fatigue. But honestly, these are absolutely spectacularly well-tolerated drugs in general, both larotrectinib and entrectinib. 
And in terms of updates, because they have such a high response rate and the responses are so durable, we will never see a placebo-controlled trial against these drugs. So things like this presented at ASCO 2022 is going to be the best we will ever have to assess how do the Trek fusion drugs compare against any kind of standard of therapy, like with chemotherapy, from before Trek fusion inhibitors were available. So this is a comparison with real-world data using as a control historical patients with those matched diseases that did not receive a Trek inhibitor. And what you can see here is that there is a suggestion of an overall survival benefit. That should not be a surprise, given the high levels of response and the durabilities of these responses. Now, one can always pick apart and criticize real-world data for a variety of technical reasons, but I think this really supports an overwhelming, rational, common-sense approach to the fact that these TREC fusion inhibitors are a new modality, highly effective and very well tolerated to treat patients with TREC fusion positive cancers of many types. Now, this is the overall survival analysis from that ASCO poster, suggesting what we've all thought would probably be the truth if we ever were to do a randomized placebo-controlled trial, that the patients with the targeted therapy, in this case, larotrectinib, compared to patients with TREC fusions receiving standard of care before any TREC fusion inhibitors were available, they're doing much better than with standards of care. So let's now move to the other new fusion target, relatively new, the RET inhibitors for RET fusions. Again, you know that RET fusions are often found in lung cancers, but more often found in thyroid cancers of many types. We see uh, two drugs on the U.S. market, selpercatinib and pralcetinib, both of which have somewhat similar uh, FDA approvals in this country. Uh, they have to have a RET fusion positive detected by a, an FDA-approved test generally for pralcetinib. It's a bit more loose language for selpercatinib. And admittedly, there are pediatric patients with these as well who can receive either drug. So I think that's extremely important to consider the indications, and you'll hear a bit more about moving beyond these indications in the future. These are both very highly selective drugs against RET fusions and against RET targets. We see again with RET fusion inhibitors, in this case with RET fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer or thyroid cancer, these magnificent waterfall plots that we've come to expect with highly targeted therapies in fusion-driven cancers like TREK fusions. Wonderful responses and wonderful durability both in non-small cell lung cancer or thyroid cancer. This is true both for those who were pre-treated, the darker green RET and the darker blue for the thyroid, and the treatment-naive, fewer in the non-small cell lung cancer, that's the lighter green lung cancer patients, and the lighter blue thyroid cancers. So at this point, it is very important that both heavily pre-treated or treatment-naive patients can have benefits, although the benefits seem to be a bit more numerically common in the treatment-naive cancers. And this trial, uh, codenamed ARROW, was the study of pralcetinib in non-small cell lung cancer. This again shows you the waterfall plots that are outstanding even in the setting of prior platinum-based chemotherapy treatment on the upper right. But it's even more outstanding, as you see on the bottom, for patients who were treatment naive. So treating earlier 
makes good sense for patients with ret fusion non-small cell lung cancer, as you might expect. That does tend to be the case in most cancers, that if there's a fundamental driver, treating that driver should lead to better outcomes. And that's exactly what we see here. The treatment-naive patients have better waterfall plots than the prior platinum, although even in the setting of prior platinum, you see wonderful activity. The same is true with wonderful waterfall plots with fusion-positive, ret-fusion-positive thyroid tumors. Lots of overall responses, highly durable. As we move towards targeting the fundamental driver of many kinds of cancers, even those that share the same driver, we see this kind of study, a basket study, that explored the tumor-agnostic efficacy of selpercatinib, a RET fusion inhibitor, in RET fusion-positive solid tumors of many types. Vivek Suvaya presented this at ASCO 2022. And you'll see on the right the, different, the many different types of cancers that were tested here, with a somewhat predominance in this study of pancreatic and colon cancers. Remember, for this study, patients with thyroid cancer or non-small cell lung cancer were not included because we already knew this drug worked in them. And what we saw here was an overall response rate in this basket tumor agnostic study of 44% including a low number of complete responders, but many more partial responders. And the efficacy was quite impressive in pancreatic carcinoma even, as well as colon and others like breasts and sarcomas. So it is important to keep in mind RET fusions in other types of cancers besides non-small cell lung cancer and thyroid. These tumor responses are seen here for, again, the waterfall plots and the duration of treatment. So the duration of benefit for these patients was also quite impressive. The study remains ongoing. Many patients are still on the study, but it is the new direction that we've come to expect from many types of therapies that are going to be tumor agnostic, such as the very first tumor agnostic approval for the NTREC fusions with a targeted therapy, or the very, very first tumor agnostic approval with immunotherapy for MSI high patients with pembrolizumab. And just as with non-small cell lung cancer, just as with thyroid, the adverse events in the basket study were very, very tolerable with the RET fusion inhibitors. You see some laboratory abnormalities. You see a bit of hypertension, but generally very low grade. And a few other things that you'll see on this slide, nothing compared to some of the toxic combination chemotherapies that we as oncologists were trained to give many years ago. So this is a very tolerable option for patients with this fusion driver. And the same can be said for pralcetinib. There's more limited data to some extent with pralcetinib, but this has also been presented. And again, overall tumor responses show very nice waterfall plots and a very nice duration of these responses and duration on study drug treatment with pralcetinib in basket studies. So beyond this, there are many, many other strategies to move an effective therapy forward that we all know in oncology. Moving something earlier in the neoadjuvant setting is the ultimate early approach to try to shrink things before you approach them surgically. But even before you do that, you can move to what's outlined in red here, a study after surgery or radiation. So you're trying to assess the potential for 
adjuvant therapy earlier, earlier, earlier. Generally, again, as you've seen with the no prior therapy, non-small cell lung cancer or thyroid patients, patients do tend to do better in the earlier stages of treatment. So this is a new direction that's being taken with several of the RET inhibitors in clinical trials. On this slide, selpercatinib is identified primarily. Thanks, George. And in the next section, having heard about the available first-generation or early-generation TKIs, if you will, for fusion-positive cancers, Dr. Sabaya is going to lead us through the various mechanisms by which these cancers might acquire resistance to therapy. Vivek? So what are the mechanisms of acquired resistance to kinase inhibitors across cancers? Again, as we all know, uh, protein tyrosine kinase in our targeted cancer therapies are uh, subject to acquired resistance. Besides activation of alternative bypass mechanisms, a mechanism is secondary to on-target mutations that interfere with drug binding and identifying and characterizing these resistance mechanisms, discovering new drugs and translating uh, the drugs to clinic to overcome uh, these resistance mechanisms are very critical for improving uh, our patient outcomes. So what are the broad mechanisms of resistance one can think of? Like one is, uh, you know, broadly, we can think about de novo resistance and acquired resistance. And um, in acquired resistance, we can think about on-target resistance and off-target resistance. And as you can see here in this figure, you know, mutations in the drug target that impact the drug binding and what we call as on-target drug resistance. And, you know, there are other mechanisms of, you know, resistance beyond on-target, what we call as, I would say, phonofriend, where, you know, there can be a bypass, you know, signaling, uh, you know, for, for the cancer, you know, for the, for, for, the, for the cancer pathways. Again, my colleague here, Alex Dillon and colleagues, you know, recently published elegantly uh, the key mechanisms of primary and acquired resistance to, you know, selective rate inhibitor therapy across, you know, multiple tumors. And, and they showed that, you know, many of these mechanisms of resistance are overlapping. And, you know, what we see is that, you know, de novo and acquired resistance mechanisms to tyrosine kinases like NTRAC or RET have been observed in clinic. And, you know, we had multi-kinase therapies for selective rate in before the advent of selective rate inhibitors like cabozantinib and vandretinib, specifically for RET. And, you know, the response to these multi-kinase inhibitors were low, partially because of the incomplete suppression of the oncogene RET kinase. And interestingly, the gatekeeper uh, mutations uh, in, the, in, in the RET domain uh, were resistant to vandretinib, cabozantinib, lenvatinib, among others. Pralcetinib and selpercatinib uh, overcame these gatekeeper alterations. And as you can see here, acquired resistance mutations uh, for the NTREC A, B, and C are paralogs of other mutations. Again, many of these acquired on-target mutations uh, interfere with the way the drug binds Specific uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, the new ones, like selpercatinib or pralcetinib specifically for RET, circumvent the resistance of gatekeeper mutations. However, uh, these uh, selective RET inhibitors and NTREC inhibitors face new challenges by non-gatekeeper resistance sites. In the laboratory screening, we, some call some, you know, we call them the solvent front alterations uh, for RET 
for RET inhibitors, pralcetinib and salpercatinib, specifically the G10 CSNR at the C lobe solvent front and the Y806 uh, CNN mutations at the hinge site and the roof site as well. Again, all the you know, mutations that are resistant to selpercatinib are resistant to pralcetinib as well. And the most substantial resistance is on the C lobe in the G10 solvent front. And you know, we also have seen MET amplification. And, and my colleague Alex uh, Drillen and colleagues have reported that you know, pa patients who acquire uh, resistance by CMET amplification you know, can be concurrently targeted with a MET inhibitor. In, you know, concurrently with a RET inhibitor and, you know, showing uh, that, you know, when tumor is a rumor in acquired resistance, you know, tissue is an issue. And they elegantly showed that, you know, these bypass mechanisms can be concurrently targeted by, you know, a selective a MET-targeted therapy. You know, we and others have observed enteric fusions as a resistance mechanism to selective uh, RET inhibitor therapy. And moreover, we've also seen a MAP kinase pathway activating events that are polyclonal uh, within the same patient. Again, these events can occur alone or in a combined fashion in other patients. You know, similar patterns have, are being observed in other kinase uh, fusions like ALK, ROS1, and TREK. And a new generation of superior inhibitors are evolving and, and being discovered uh, as we discover these uh, oncogene acquired resistance mechanisms. Thanks, Dr. Sabaya. And with that introduction to acquired resistance, this last section will touch on what you can do in the face of on-target or kinase domain-mediated resistance. So we'll start off with the um, overarching principle that there are new agents that are currently in clinical trials but remember that whenever possible, if you resequence your patient's cancer, you are looking for these acquired kinase domain mutations as a way of matching patients to new therapies. And if you clearly find another mechanism like bypass resistance, that these single agent next-gen treatments may not be the best fit for your patients. What are some of these therapies? We're gonna start with NTRAC fusions. And here you'll see two different drugs that are next-generation TRAC inhibitors, repotrectinib, which is also an inhibitor of ROS1, and selitrectinib, which is a selective next-generation inhibitor of TRAC. These were designed in a very intelligent fashion because what happens with the mutations is that, as you can see in the diagram, they put up blockages that prevent the binding of early generation agents like larotrectinib and entrectinib. And these molecules were designed to be smaller drugs or smaller moieties that zip past the blockage and re-engage the ATP binding domain and shut down oncogenic signal signaling. You'll see here proof that these drugs are active in vitro and in vivo as well, not shown on this slide. But the drugs that we spoke about, selitrectinib, that's LOXO195 on the far right, and repotrectinib, TPX0005, also on the far right. And you'll see that compared to earlier generation agents like larotrectinib that's in the middle, that we see increased activity in the dark blue boxes with lower IC50s, 
for many of these acquired kinase domain mutations in NTRAC1, NTRAC2, or NTRAC3 that Dr. Subaya discussed in the prior section. This is an example of these next generation treatments working. So on the far right, I'll have you focus your attention on the PET and CT scans of two different patients. These were NTRAC fusion positive cancers, an adult patient above and a pediatric patient below. These patients developed acquired resistance to an early generation TRAC inhibitor, then went on to LOXO195, also called selitrectinib, and as you can see, had a very nice response to therapy. And as I mentioned, this treatment and repotrectinib are both in clinical trials for your patients and are available therapies. In fact, repotrectinib already has breakthrough designation from the FDA for the treatment of patients with NTRAC fusion positive cancers. So how might we use these therapies? Here you see a timeline where a patient with an NTRAC fusion positive cancer starts a first generation agent like entrectinib or larotrectinib. At the onset of progression, we always look to see if progression is in a defined area or region, meaning solitary site or oligoprogression. And often in that case, we might employ techniques like local therapy, radiation to get rid of the growing clones. I always favor biopsying one of these areas to identify the potential mechanism of resistance. And if, if on the biopsy you find one of these mutations, then you have a next generation therapy in your back pocket for the future after much more widespread progression on therapy. Of course, if you do have widespread progression at the onset and you have the appropriate mutation or you don't find bypass resistance on repeat sequencing, then considering a next generation agent like repotrectinib or selitrectinib is a good next step. Now before we end, a brief mention that this is a strategy that applies to other fusions as well, including red fusions. And you've heard from Dr. Subaya that certainly with selpercatinib and prelcetinib, we've seen the acquisition of red mutations that abrogate drug binding. And we have newer drugs that are listed here like LOXO260 or HMO6, which have been similarly designed with activity against these mutations. And these clinical trials are ongoing at multiple centers around the world. All right, and now we come to the discussion portion of today's session, and we're going to go through a number of points that were discussed during the didactics earlier on. The first question for uh, George Urbivik is, is it often an issue that people don't know what a real fusion is? We certainly know that there are reports where you might have a fusion of uncertain significance. So is that something that you encounter in your practice? And what, you, what do you advise other practitioners that ask you this question? Well, if I could start, and then I'll pass it to Vivek. Um, I, I think that is a big issue, depending on how the molecular test is reported to the clinician. We have uh, an internal academic molecular test that reported uh, rearrangement, let's say. And the question was, well, was that rearrangement really translated into a fusion protein? Did it, did it mean something for that cancer? And we went back and they said, we can't be sure. We think so, but maybe not. 
So I do think this is where an interaction with whatever lab is doing the molecular testing is really key. And it's where the RNA testing does have an advantage because there it will be clear, here's gene one, here's gene two, the RNA shows them put together and the part of the gene that has the enzyme in it is actually wholly entrenched in that fusion. That gives you the security of knowing that that fusion is really there and the protein is an oncogenic kinase chimera, like the old mythological creature. It actually can fly on its own. So I do think that's something that most doctors want to see very clearly in the molecular report. And I know that not all molecular reports are clear on that. Some just say rearrangement, can't tell. Others will specifically say, we don't see the kinase portion rearranged, so it is not a fusion. And Vivek, I don't know what your experience has been in your reports or Alex at Memorial Sloan Kettering. No, I think we have a similar experience, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, detecting kinase fusions. I think, uh, uh, you know, we have a similar experience. And, and, the, and the reports, you know, many times we, we call and talk to a pathologist to, you know, make sure uh, that these are, uh, you know, th these are seen. And, and sometimes we ask even, um, you know, uh, to see, to get a liquid biopsy to see if, to confirm that. Because as we know, uh, ctDNA testing is an option for NGS as well. I don't think so. We discussed uh, about uh, ctDNA. But, you know, ctDNA, as we all know, is specific but not sensitive. Um, and so we sometimes we do a ctDNA to uh, look for these uh, fusions. And just to cap that off, uh, this is certainly something that's not uncommon. And sometimes even in reports where you think that in the top line analysis, you might see a fusion that looks familiar. I've often gone into the fine print and seen the company mention, well, it's not clear that this is a real event. Um, so that dialogue that you mentioned, George, is really important, plus the confirmatory assays to really make sure that you're dealing with a, a, a true event. Yeah, I think that's really important because otherwise a doctor could get a very bad first impression. If they get an ambiguous report and they put a patient on one of these drugs and it doesn't work, they are at risk of saying, oh, these drugs don't work. What are those guys talking about? But actually, it's probably more a failure of diagnostics than the drug per se, if, if it doesn't have a resistance mutation. That's why, for example, for the NTREC fusions, the FDA specifically said a TREC fusion that doesn't have a known resistance mutation. I, I thought that was really a forward-thinking approval language on their part. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree. And, and it's important also to distinguish, you know, between fusions and mutations. I think, you know, many of the oncologists, you know, when, when, we, when we get the reports or even, you know, when we review the history of prior treatments, uh, you know, sometimes they may confuse, uh, you know, fusions and mutations as similar. For NTREC uh, genes, fusions are activating and predictive of response to targeted therapy. For NTREC, uh, you know, genes, mutations do not appear to be the driver oncogenic event. I think that is one thing key, uh, you know, we, we need to drill down upon, you know, uh, our, our, our colleagues that for NTREC, fusions are activating and predicting of response and genes, uh, gene mutations uh, do not appear to be oncogenic driver. For RET, uh, it, the fusions are activating and predictive of response to targeted therapy uh, from non-small cell lung cancer, thyroid cancer, 
and also uh, in a histology agnostic um, manner across all cancers. Mutations in you know, both germline and sporadic uh, appear to be oncogenic drivers, specifically in medullary thyroid cancer. Again, it is important to recognize the, 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 the difference between mutations and fusions uh, you know, uh, for, as, for purposes of clinical care. I think that's really important because a lot of doctors will get a molecular report, they'll see an NTREC mutation, they'll get all excited, and then they'll read the print about this has no therapeutic validity because none of the fusion inhibitors inhibit the point mutations with NTREC. So I, I do think that's key. Yeah, that's right. And it also applies to other situations like ROS1 where you're really looking for a fusion and not a mutation that doesn't drive oncogenesis. But the other layer here is what we discussed that, of course, when you develop resistance to a first-generation agent, that you do see acquired mutations on top of a fusion. So we should just make sure that we have that distinction. But perhaps let's use this um, uh, moment to pivot to what we think are the best tests for finding these fusions. Vivek, you talked about a number of things um, earlier on, and then you also recently mentioned ctDNA. What's your approach to optimizing uh, the likelihood of finding one of these fusions in the clinic? Absolutely. Thank you, Alex, uh, for the question. Uh, testing for TREC fusions across all solid tumors is important, you know, especially uh, we wouldn't be testing for just TREC fusions. You know, we want to see uh, look for all alterations, uh, specifically for malignancies with high you know, TREC fusion prevalence, such as MASC or infantile you know, fibrosarcoma. And you know, the, the preferred tests for uh, you know, fusion detection for NTREC and RET is RNA-based uh, next-generation sequencing technology. The, you know, there are, uh, of course, you know, DNA-based NGS and RNA-based NGS. DNA-based NGS is an option but this uh, clearly misses out some NTREC1 and NTREC3 fusions, which may not be detected. Again, we, also important to note uh, liquid biopsies, like ctDNA. It is definitely an option for next-generation sequencing, but sensitivity can be an issue. So it is important to know that a liquid biopsy ctDNA is specific but not sensitive. If the ctDNA is negative uh, for an oncogenic driver, are an undetectable in liquid biopsy, uh, tissue is an issue. We need to perform uh, tumor-based uh, next-generation sequencing panel, preferably RNA-based, and you know, DNA-based NGS is an option as well. Other options that are available clinically right, to us are uh, immunohistochemistry. Uh, it lacks sensitivity and specificity for routine clinical use. But it is easily accessible. Again, when we when several times in the clinic we see patient is positive or negative for IHC, and you know they they would want us to start some treatment. But here, you know, IHC lacks both sensitivity and specificity. In this case, we still need to do an NGS-based testing to confirm the presence of these activating fusions. Fish is highly sensitive, but it requires uh, technical expertise. And RT-PCR is also able to identify fusion partners, but cannot detect unknown fusion partners. And again, very poor preservation of the tumor sample reduces sensitivity, and there are quality issues in terms of uh, doing RT-PCR. So again, to drill down uh, that, you know, here for testing and detecting fusions, RNA-based NGS is the preferred option for both NTREC and RET fusions, and of course, all other fusions as well. 
So George, let's flesh this out a little bit more. So I agree that I think that the best approach when you have coverage um, is to do NGS that is both DNA and RNA based. But there are other issues like people who are in different practice environments where maybe there's not coverage. Also, you get into the weeds of while there may be billable cancers, it might be more difficult to sequence a different uh, histology uh, apart from lung. Well, what are your thoughts on um, testing relative to these different barriers? I think these are the practical problems that community docs are encountering all the time. I think Medicare made a big move forward a few years ago when they said for metastatic solid tumors, next generation sequencing will be covered for beneficiaries. But it's still confusing because Medicare is a patchwork quilt of different organizations that administrate Medicare rules across the country. So I think it's really a problem, and I can't say that we've solved it either. Even within our group of the sarcoma group, um, we have different opinions amongst our experts about how to use sequencing, when to look for things. And in many ways, I'm very jealous of our non-small cell lung cancer colleagues, because their non-small cell lung cancer has really carved the path forward, right? Comprehensive molecular testing the first time out with multiple genes, with really best technology, has been shown and presented at ASCO as a cost-effective, patient-friendly way to use the tissue wisely and to get to the diagnosis as fast as possible. And I think that's not been true in most other cancers. You know, at least in lung cancer, you know you have to look for EGFR, ROS1, ALK, RET, BRAF. You know, the list goes on and on and on. So non-small cell lung goes after this. Most other cancer types still are in the dark ages of maybe we should look at these two or three genes. And I'll give you a, my nightmare scenario. We had a patient who was referred from another site, a big academic hospital, had molecular testing with an older panel. I'm talking only five years old. And that was negative for any pathogenic driver. So the patient came in, had a malignant schwannoma, uh, also known as a malignant peripheral nerve sheath tumor. Got chemotherapy, had a little bit of benefit, started to progress, got another chemotherapy, little benefit, but not much, and then just started to progress all you know, with all the bar, the barn door was blown open. The cancer was moving very, very quickly. So I looked at the original molecular testing, and it was one of these academic panels of, let's say, 80 genes. And I said, you know what? How do I know how well they even looked for a fusion? And of course, you know where I'm going to go with this. We actually sent it out to another lab, which we had more faith in, more comprehensive. And ridiculously, we found a Trek fusion. So we put the patient on the Trek fusion inhibitor, first-generation larotrectinib. Patient did great for about a year. Resistance kicked in. Patient did not, was not able to get to the other drug fast enough. Complications from where the cancer was um, in the lung got in the way of that, and the patient passed away from the disease. But in retrospect, I always worry, what would that patient have done had we been able to really identify that sooner and had not given mutagenic chemotherapy over the time that the patient was getting chemotherapy. That, that to me is why patients where if we could identify who's at the best chance of having a Trek fusion, we should do that right away. And I think that's important. In our world of sarcomas, we have you know 200 different kinds of sarcomas. We've really tried to identify, are there kinds of sarcomas where you really don't need the testing? 
So we identified liposarcomas, which have MDM2 amplification and a specific chromosomal amplification, chromosome 12. But then the French sarcoma group comes out and said, we found three liposarcomas of that type that have Trek fusions. And they, and they drugged them and it worked. The Trek fusion was a driver. So at least in sarcomas, I'm really feeling that it makes sense to, to screen them all, except if you've got a known mutagenic driver like a kit mutation in GIST. Those you don't need a Trek fusion. You know, you're not going to look for it because you're not going to find it. But even in the GISTs where we don't have a driver, we look now very fast for Trek fusions because that's where they're going to be enriched. That, that's all I can say, but you can't treat the patient unless you have the best diagnosis. And these days, molecular testing is the best diagnosis, and it's moving very quickly. I don't think all the commercial labs or the academic labs are really making it easy for community doctors or even academic doctors to figure out how best to diagnose their patients. You know, we're not pathologists, we're oncologists. Absolutely. Well, well said, George. I think, you know, even in lung cancer, and, you know, you mentioned older panels and newer panels, I think it's important to distinguish between a mutation panel and a fusion panel. Again, many of the centers, small centers, they may just test for a mutation panel and say that, you know, it's negative. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, they test for fusions. You know, you really need to look into the report and see, you know, see if they tested for fusions. I, again, you know, I, I, you know, you, you said that you were jealous of, you know, lung cancer again, but unfortunately, there are, you know, so many reports, you know, from the community that even in lung cancer patients, you know, around like the figure is like 30 to 40 percent of patients are not being tested uh, appropriately, right? I think, uh, I, I think maybe I should ask Alex, uh, you know, this question. So, Again, uh, you know, we, we frequently find our patients, you know, for instance, let me share a, an experience uh, with, with our patient, a 50-year-old female, you know, former very light smoker presented with cough, found to have metastatic lung cancer and the EGFR ALK, ROS1, BRAF are all negative. But in this case, PDL one uh, was positive by IHC. And then uh, we performed an RNA-based NGS panel. Uh, it turned out to have a KIF-5B red fusion. So here, you know, uh, we were uh, discussing in our, you know, uh, treatment planning meeting and tumor board, uh, what would the PDL one positivity by IHC mean um, in the context of a uh, red fusion? I think, uh, you know, you probably encountered uh, that uh, uh, almost every uh, week in your in your setting. Do you want to talk about that, Alex? Oh yeah, absolutely. And it brings up a good point that in the way that we think about these fusion positive cancers, uh, we have to also consider what happens um, with other systemic therapies. And we know that a lot of these cancers with fusions tend to be very genomically naive. They may not have a lot of neoantigens on the cell surface. And so while they can express PDL1 at a high level, a certain proportion of them, um, what we've seen in practice, and we've published a lot of this, is that the likelihood of response to single agent immunotherapy is low. And so if you look at the hierarchy of different therapies relative to benefit, really starting with the targeted therapy is the best way to go. And I think that um, talking about cases um, and how active these treatments are also share that we had a 76-year-old woman also with a lung cancer who had widely metastatic disease to bone, liver, etc. She was found to have a, an N-track fusion, thankfully, um, and she actually refused um, chemotherapy. 
um, which in lung cancer, a platinum doublet can be highly active. But now we know, if you look at the registrational data for drugs like lyotrectinib or entrectinib, that the outcomes with targeted therapy certainly beat um, chemotherapy. And so she, unsurprisingly, had a dramatic response to therapy um, and has been on it for four years and is still ongoing and hasn't seen chemotherapy yet. And it just highlights really how important it is to do the testing to find these alterations because it helps you find the best first therapy um, that can result in really um, durable disease control. Yeah, I think, I think that's definitely true in lung cancer. I, I have to bring up the case of colon cancer where the TREC fusions are often co-found with an MSI high status. And that, that brings up the wonderful opportunity to say, okay, do I start with the TREC fusion inhibitor drug or do I start with immunotherapy because the MSI high types of cancers do tend to have a remarkable benefit with immunotherapy. And the fact there is, I don't think we have data one way or the other that one is better than the other, but it gives you two wonderful tools to treat those patients with. So I think it's, it, it sounds like a bad thing, but in many ways it's up to the physician then and the patient to say, okay, I'd rather have the TREC fusion drug because I don't want to risk the immunotherapy toxicities, or I'd rather have the immunotherapy first because it cured Jimmy Carter or something. Whatever reason they come up with is a patient-doctor shared decision with two wonderful treatment options. That seems to be unique though in colorectal cancer. I have not seen that with anything else. Is that your experience? Yeah, it's a, it's a good situation um, to keep in mind because it does happen. And I will point out that the, those cancers are also enriched for other fusions and not just NTRAC. So you might see a ROS1 fusion, for example, or a RET fusion. We've seen that in our hands. But uh, many of the other cancers do tend to be less genomically complex, low TMB, um, et cetera. Well, perhaps at this point, um, uh, Vivek, um, why don't you share um, your experiences with the clinical trials of next-generation therapies? Um, are they really working well? Um, and in what context do you consider these relative to the sequencing that uh, you perform on progression if you do um, repeat sequencing? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, uh, you know, we have several uh, next-generation TREC tyrosine kinases that can address on-target resistance to early-generation, uh, you know, TREC tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Again, the second-generation TREC inhibitors are being increasingly investigated in clinical trials for patients who have developed uh, acquired resistance to early generation uh, TREC inhibitors. The, the important thing is that the first thing is, you know, I would advise, uh, you know, and recommend all community uh, colleagues to first test for these, RET, uh, you know, RET and NTREC fusions. And, you know, we have two, not one, but two, uh, you know, NTREC inhibitor therapies for NTREC fusion positive cancers. And, you know, you know, we have seen dramatic responses. And although, uh, you know, after some time, they do acquire uh, resistance mechanisms. So what are the, you know, second generation uh, selective uh, NTREC inhibitors av available, right? So uh, I, I think, you know, we have selitrectinib. Uh, it's a TREC selective inhibitor. We have rep repotrectinib, which is a TREC selective inhibitor. It also inhibits ROS1, and the phase one, two trials are ongoing. And then there is another uh, drug, the teletrectinib, which is also uh, a TREC and a ROS1 inhibitor. 
And you know there are two other drugs with no names, the SIM18031A, which is a combined TREK and ROS1 inhibitor, and the PBI200, which is a TREK selective inhibitor. Again, all these uh, agents are in uh, phase one, early phase one, phase two studies. And it is key, you know, to uh, identify patients uh, for, for these, uh, you know, next generation selective RET inhibitors. Again, you know, recently there was uh, data uh, from the selitrectinib study showing uh, patients with, uh, who developed acquired resistance from the prior first generation uh, drugs, loratrectinib and entrectinib. And in fact, uh, they showed that uh, around an objective response rate of around 45%. And all patients who acquired solvent front, gatekeeper, and the XDFG mutation, all of them uh, had a response to this therapy. Again, the key is, you know, first thing is we, we should know that TREK inhibitors are active, result in durable disease control in TREK fusion positive cancers, regardless of prior therapy, regardless of, uh, you know, fusion partner. And we have two drugs, entrectinib and loratrectinib approved for both adult and pediatric patients who have an NTREC gene fusion positive. Resistance to NTREC inhibitor therapy can develop. Next generation, you know, the, the tyrosine kinases can definitely reestablish disease control. And here, the key is uh, when tumor in, is a rumor in, with acquired resistance mechanisms, we say tissue is an issue and molecular profiling and can help direct treatment sequencing. And, you know, all these drugs, as Dr. Dimitri mentioned earlier, are very well tolerated, again, compared to what the chemotherapies that we used to give to these patients. And, you know, they have a very low uh, rate of dose modification and drug discontinuation as well. And, of course, these drugs do have a unique adverse event profile, like, uh, you know, dizziness, LFT elevations. And, you know, they are definitely outlined in the labels and that require monitoring in the clinic. Again, you know, these are drugs, the RET inhibitors and um, NTREC inhibitors show uh, the power of precision oncology. Again, we've seen dramatic uh, responses uh, in, in patients, you know, who have, you know, a performance status uh, is, uh, will be declining in clinic and we, we start these drugs and, you know, they, they have dramatic responses. So again, the key is testing for these alterations, identifying these alterations and offering these patients the right treatment at the right time. Thanks, Vivek. We're going to wrap up in a second, but one quick question for George. Have you had issues with repeat sequencing to identify acquired resistance? We have not, but let's be honest, I'm at an academic center where billing is far from our first uh, order of business. We are fortunate to have funds that can support that, um, and it's, a, it's sort of a 1960s environment. We do what's best for patients. And it's, uh, it's a privilege to work at an academic center like that. I will say that that is a big issue. I, I think how we manage this question as responsible stewards of healthcare resources is important. And I know our pathologists are working on this too. It'd be nice to have a cheap immunologic, immunohistochemistry assay, let's say, that could identify the target that starts to glow bright green or something if you have a solvent front mutation, something like that. I think it's an issue. I'm really confident, too, that the costs of testing are going down. They're going to go down further. They're going to be more of a commodity play with high quality. And I'm thrilled about that. Like, look, let's be honest. We all have iPads. 
that if we had bought them in the 1960s, not that they existed, they would have been multiple millions of dollars. So technology has shown that technology improves, things get cheaper and they get better. And I think that's going to be true for sequencing as well. So that's my hope anyways. Maybe I'm just an optimist. How about New York? You guys have a population there that's pretty big. What are you, do you see that as a problem? Um, not uh, in our institution. I think we share sort of a similar environment, but I've certainly heard that people in the community have struggled trying to get repeat sequencing. And thankfully, since there are multiple stakeholders in drug development, we've seen some companies actually offer repeat sequencing um, to better identify patients for these next generation trials. But I don't think that's enough um, and that we need to get improved coverage across the board. Yeah, but I think that's really a good point relative to what Vivek said. These Trek fusion patients are rare enough to start with, and then the ones who develop resistance are a subset of those because many of those go on for years on the first generation drug. So that, that's why the second generation drug trials in phase one, phase two are taking so long because they're really hard to accrue. But that's why I do think uh, it's important to at least be aware of it as a physician because there are resources to help patients access the trials. I think that's absolutely key. Well, that was certainly a wonderful session. Thanks very much, George and Vivek, for your commentary today. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash P-U-E 860. This activity is supported by educational grants from Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Lilly.